0: Let's pray together. Father, give us faith to believe. Give us faith to believe everything that you have revealed in this holy word in order that we might receive every blessing that you have secured for those who come to you. Every blessing found in Christ. Every blessing that we celebrate related to his first coming. And every blessing we hope to realize at his second appearance. We are people of weak faith, imperfect faith, struggling faith. Some of us would even say, I, I'm more full of doubt at this moment than I am faith. Oh Lord God, until we see you as you are, until your spirit convicts our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, there, there really is no hope for us, but your spirit has been at work for thousands of years and has done that very kind of work. And so we submit ourselves to you on this day and pray that as your spirit moves in and out of these rows of chairs and, and touches our hearts with truth and awakens our minds to the great realities of your grace, oh Lord God, let it result in transformation. For some it will be a new birth on this day. For others, it will be progress in sanctification and growth in Christlikeness, but all of us are in need of change. So bring it about by your word. We ask, Lord, that we would not simply be touched in a sentimental way appropriate to the season of year, but that we would be transformed by the touch of the Spirit upon our lives. Give us help to understand the Word. Give me help to preach it and apply it accurately and personally. And in it all, we ask that you would exalt the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever prayed about something for so long without receiving an answer that you even reached a point where you said, I'm not sure I should continue with these prayers. Perhaps for years or even decades, nothing happened. Nothing changed. And you began to wonder, as many people through the ages have, is God even hearing my prayers? Or do you sometimes find yourself in the daily routines Uh, just going about your business as you try to serve God and make a life. And and you wonder, is there any real significance to what I do?" do? You sometimes find yourself in the middle of these long and endless days of political madness and cultural unrest and even the economic pressures that rest on, I think, just about all of us. And you wonder, sometimes out loud, sometimes in the secret of your heart, uh, even in the middle of of the night, perhaps, is there any lasting joy for me to find? Well, you are not alone if you ask questions like these and many more. And if you are asking questions like these, you actually share much more in common with some of the uh, figures of the Old and the New Testament. People who lived in uncertain times themselves, dark and dismal days that they also felt like would never come to an end. And as we come into a a brief four-part series taken largely from Luke's gospel, I want you to, to listen to this story, not so much because you already know many of the details and it's that time of year, but listen as if you've never heard these accounts before, as if you're not familiar with the characters even that we will begin looking at today, and see what you share in common with them. Because as the Lord tells us in other places, these things are written for our learning and for our encouragement that we too might find the same comfort of the gospel ultimately in our own dark and dismal days. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And I'd like to read verses 5 through 25. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's a remarkable story. And there's more to it even beyond the verses that we have read this morning, but these are given for our encouragement. These are given not just to introduce important characters to us like Zechariah and Elizabeth, but given to us that we might know the God whom they served. God is always at work. Did you know that? Do you believe that? And even when circumstances appear dismal, we can be confident that God is always working. You know, it's easy to read right over that small phrase in verse 5, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. It's easy to bypass the grim realities that these nine words actually hold for the people who lived through those days. For us, it reads like a footnote. But for the people living in those days, those few words evoked dark and sorrowful memories. And it is similar to, our, to, to how our generation one day may say, in the days of Donald Trump, President of the United States. And those of us who've lived through these several years will recall the turmoil and unrest and uncertainty that we all experienced. And unless you lived through the days of Herod, King of Judea, you might not fully appreciate the national dynamic that was at work in those days, or we could describe it in this particular way as a time of national suffering. Herod was born in the 70s BC into a family known for its loyalty to Rome. Herod was not a Jew, but an Idumean. That's the ancient land of Edom long, hostile and antagonist, if you will, to Israel. And when Herod's father was assassinated in 40 BC, he fled to Rome for a time. And about a year later, he was granted the governorship in Galilee, and he ruled there for the next 35 years. Herod married 10 wives and fathered 15 children. And he was known as a paranoid tyrant. His second wife, Mary Omni suffered greatly at his hands. Herod had both of her parents killed for fear of their rivalry to his power. And after learning that she herself was dissatisfied with his leadership, Herod had her tried and then executed. And although it's reported he mourned her death for many months, he would rather see her dead than have her critical of his own rule. It was not too long after this that He ordered the execution of the two sons born to him by Mary He was suspicious that they were maneuvering for his governorship and along with their executions, he ordered that 300 of their loyal supporters should also be put to death. So at the time of our story, a third son, Antipater, is plotting his father's assassination and overthrow. So you can imagine from Zachariah's position and perspective, Herod is a visible reminder that Israel is not at that moment a nation under God. It is no longer the theocracy it once was, but a nation occupied by a ruthless military, a pagan government, and a paranoid king. I think The parallels to our own setting are obvious, but many of us feel similarly that things are changing rapidly and some of us feel like our own hope is eroding. We too feel, as Zachariah and Elizabeth must have, that there was more evil around them than goodness and more darkness than light. Look at verses 6 and 7, for it was not only a time of national suffering, it was also a season of personal pain. Verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, praise God for people. Righteous doesn't mean perfect. It just means they were ordering their lives according to the word of God. Old Testament books, all 39 of them that they had access to were apparently the framework uh, uh, of their lives. And the phrase, walking blamelessly, means that they were people of integrity. Again, not perfect, not sinless. There's only been one sinless human being who's ever walked the face of planet Earth. But these two people were people of integrity and people of faith. But look at verse 7. They had no child. And to complicate and maybe even deepen that pain, they were now advanced in years. Childlessness was generally associated with God's discipline and judgment in Israel. And for Elizabeth, as we read in verse 25, she viewed it as a reproach. And that is not too strong of a word to place over this, for in Jewish culture it had long been considered a disgrace. It's easy for us to dismiss this as a little bit of an outdated cultural viewpoint, but I think functionally, we all understand, and some of you ladies have and are wrestling with this very kind of thing. I've wondered, as you probably do, why God would withhold a child from a godly couple. Now, we've already read and know how the story's going to go, but but rewind it a little bit and put yourself in their shoes. Aren't good things supposed to happen to good people, righteous, blameless people? Don't they deserve more from the hand of God? I wonder how many well-intentioned but foolish questions even deepened their pain and sorrow through the years. Hey, Zach, when are you and the missus going to start a family? Don't you want children? What is your career as a priest more important to you than having a family? Some of you have endured questions that are just as foolish and painful. It's clear that Luke in recording this account of their lives is inspired by the Holy Spirit to include this important little detail because he, the Spirit, I am confident wants us to connect in a real way to say these are righteous people but they're experiencing deep personal pain. The fact that they are advanced simply means they're old. The Lord doesn't put a number on that for us, but they're in that category where no one, including Zachariah and Elizabeth, would have any expectation that children were coming. And I wonder, as you read this, do you feel a little indignation rising as I do? Because even at this point, and again, not knowing where this story is really headed, and situations similar, I've wanted to say, as you probably have, God, what Why would you do this to these two? There's a line from a great hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. At this moment, to take the words and truths of that hymn, in many ways, all that Zachariah and Elizabeth can see is the frowning providence. Where is the smiling face of God? And here they are in the twilight of their lives, having to be content with God's providence, having to be content with things they can't understand or fully explain. It's a season of long, inexplicable, personal pain. But above the national suffering and even underneath this personal pain is a God who is at work, and he's about to take the frayed threads of this couple's uh, life and weave it beautifully into the larger tapestry of redemption. And that's where we come to verse 8. And the story starts to feel like it takes a little turn at this point, and this is what I would describe simply as a moment of privileged ministry. Look at verse 9. Zechariah's lot was to burn incense. Now, I'm going to read a portion from uh, a a Bible scholar and historian who describes exactly what this meant in, in more detail than what Luke gives us in his gospel. And I think this will be helpful for you. So let me read from William Hendrickson, a faithful commentator Uh, of the Word of God, and in particular here of this passage. Each day, the various functions of the priesthood were apportioned by Lot. The most solemn part of the entire liturgy was the burning of incense. It was then that the priest approached closest to the veil, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. It's understandable that to be chosen by Lot to burn incense was considered a unique privilege. Only once in a lifetime was a priest allowed to receive this honor. Even afterward, he was considered rich and holy. Numerically speaking, to be chosen by Lot to burn incense was a privilege shared by few. Twice a day this incense was offered. What took place may be introduced as follows. Zechariah proceeds toward the golden altar. Now, here's a little uh, kind of graphic rendering of what Herod's temple would have looked like. And if you can see, uh, kind of right in the middle is the altar of incense and there to the right of it is the table of showbread and it's really tiny you can't make it out but you can at least see the label lampstand so if you're facing the altar of incense to the right is a table of showbread to the left is that golden lampstand and because the doors were shut it would have been relatively dim illumined only by those seven flames burning on the top of that menorah So Zechariah proceeds toward the golden altar. He is accompanied by two assistants. One of these men is carrying in a golden bowl burning coals from the altar of burnt offering and is spreading them out on the altar of incense. He would then withdraw. The other assistant would carry a golden censer filled with incense. He would arrange the incense upon the altar, and now profound silence ensues, for the most solemn action of the ritual is about to occur. A signal is given. The sacred moment has arrived for Zachariah to place the incense upon the coals, causing a cloud to arise, its fragrance rising and spreading. Together with the ascending aroma, a fervent prayer consisting of thanksgiving for blessings received and of supplication for peace upon Israel, now issues from the heart and lips of the priest. The people gathered outside the sanctuary, but inside its courts are also praying in a prostrate position and with outstretched hands. Then they wait for Zechariah to return from the altar of incense and to proceed eastward to the steps in front of the sanctuary. On these steps, Zechariah, accompanied by other priests, is expected to pronounce Aaron's blessing over the people. This benediction will be followed by songs of praise and public offerings and more. But at that moment, standing in the holy place, His world illumined by those seven flames of the sacred lampstand, the veil of the Holy of Holies just in front of him, and the altar of incense before him. Suddenly, and by Luke's testimony, to the right of the altar, Gabriel appears. Gabriel, whose name means the might of God. Gabriel, who appeared to the prophet Daniel hundreds of years earlier, appearing in such glory that that righteous prophet fell on his face. Gabriel, who revealed the end of the ages and interpreted the dreams of Daniel, giving the word of God. Gabriel, who by his own testimony stands in the very presence of God, appears to this old priest just outside the Holy of Holies. So to read those words in the text, verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. That's the height of understatement. I suspect that Zachariah's first thoughts may have been something like this. Oh, I have really messed something up. And by the way, I looked and looked for an artist's rendering of Gabriel and found nothing that satisfied Quite frankly, most of them looked like Gabriel belongs to the fairer sex and gender. Angels, as they appear in the scriptures, very often uh, appear in military attire. They're part of God's angelic army. Now, I don't know if Gabriel appeared in some kind of heavenly armor, sword at his side, but, but we need to be done with these you know, kind of like soft, you know, glowing white, flowing robes and you know, pasty white skin, if you and I saw an angel today, we would not think, oh, how nice. Our first thought would be, oh, how holy, how sinful. Luke doesn't explain all that troubled Zachariah. And in some respects, he doesn't need to Because when God sends a heavenly manger to earthly people like us, there are far too many things unfolding at that moment for us to fully comprehend or be described. But this is the beautiful thing to me. Though this man has trembled, look at what the angel says to him. Verse 13, do not be afraid. And Gabriel, on behalf of God, begins to speak to the greatest fears of this man. And he says, do not be afraid. The big overarching theme that's going to emerge is that God is always gracious. And remember, the, the nature of grace is you don't deserve it. I'm sure that Zachariah had an overwhelming sense of his sin, of his brokenness, of his weakness, of his failures in that moment. But God's word to him is do not be afraid. Gabriel's not on a mission of wrath and judgment and death. He has a different purpose, and he begins to speak to those fears. And look at verse 13. It is remarkable. Your prayer has been heard. And there it is. Does God hear our prayers? Yeah. Now think for a moment. Isn't it reasonable? The text doesn't tell us this, but isn't it reasonable to think that as an older man married to an older wife, all those prayers for a child probably stopped sometime back. Maybe he's been praying right up into that very moment, but it's the the way the text guides us, making a point that Elizabeth is barren, they were advanced in years, I suspect that he may have given up on those prayers long before. And that's no reflection on the man's faith, that's just reality for us in a fallen world where we age and these bodies begin to wear out and they cease to do all that they were created to do. But the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. That had to be a staggering moment. But what a great word of grace. God hears your prayers. Here's a second thought. Do you wonder if your life is significant as I do, as Zechariah probably did? You shall call his name John. Well, it's not just that you're going to have a son, but there's something unfolding here that, that is bigger than Zachariah and Elizabeth, bigger than their desires to have a family. God is at work, and he's including ordinary people in his eternal plans. The name John means God is Gracious. That's not the name that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have chosen. We'll we'll see that later on the story, but it is God's special name for this boy. And then when we read verses 15 and following, we begin to see some very specific things that God describes about the son who would be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look at verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. Something about his life that will be marked by significance. And what does this greatness look like? Well, first of all, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and and that from the time of his conception and birth, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, verse 16 says, and then verse 17, he will go before him, Messiah, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah, as a righteous man and as a trained priest, was was probably just overwhelmed with all of these thoughts and and moving out of that immediate fear that would have overwhelmed him, listening to this prophetic word of the angel before him, his mind may have gone straight back to Malachi saying, my son, The, the son that you're saying will be born is going to be that son that Malachi prophesied, that great Elijah who would prepare the way for Messiah himself. From their perspective, for so many years, it looked as if God never intended to give them a son. But do you think that God already had that plan worked out when he said to Malachi, write this prophecy down? Sure he did. And not just 400 years before this couple had to go through that painful season of barrenness. We know that from before the foundation of the world, God had laid out this plan. And he not only purposed to bring John the Baptist into the world he purposed that these two should be the parents do not be afraid first because God hears our prayers and second of all because he delights to include ordinary people in his eternal plans and there's a third reason not to fear go back to verse 14 And that is this God purposes to give us joy you will have joy and gladness oh what a refreshing spirit-lifting word that must have been to a couple who for so many years felt, felt the pain of their barrenness. What was it like for them to gather in those great assemblies and feast days with family and friends and see others with little ones running around, but not them. As they aged and probably some of their siblings or families had their own children getting married and moving into the next stages of life, I'm sure that they attended many wedding celebrations and feasts, but nothing that they could plan for their own children. And now God's messenger says you will have great happiness and exuberant joy. All the joy that Zachariah and Elizabeth have known to this point has been tainted, diminished. It's like the joy that you and I experience even on our best days. There's just always something that will suck a little bit of the air or light out of those moments. This is one of the greatest seasons of the year, and it's also one of the hardest, isn't it? That's why illness and sickness and even psychological issues rise here at the end of the year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We want to celebrate. We want to experience joy, and yet the sorrows that we've known, the reproaches that we bear all taint it. God's gracious work in us ultimately and unfailingly produces great happiness and exuberant joy. God is gracious even when we don't see it, haven't yet experienced it. And in His grace, He speaks to our greatest fears just like He was speaking to Zachariah's greatest fears. But there's something else. Go to verse 18, because here, God grows our weakest faith. He's going to grow Zechariah right now. And look at the question that Zechariah asks. How shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Oh, something emerges here, and it's actually unbelief. It's reasonable, isn't it? I mean, who, who among us can fault him? Yet we're actually going to listen to Gabriel, guide the conversation in a way, and see an action taken... Uh, that shows us, mm, this is unbelief. Zacharias should have thought a different way to e- express this or, or respond to this than what he did. But even here, it is God's grace that takes him where he is and grows him to a place that God wants him to be. So while the question makes sense, he, he's hung up in much the way that we would be hung up. How shall I know this? Like How can this thing be? We have a series of questions that we want to ask. Well, who are you to say, or how could this happen to me, or what about, and when, and why? And the real question is, who? Who is giving the promise? Whose word is this? And that's where it's important for us to look at verse 19 and see the origin of Gabriel's good news. As spectacular a creature as Gabriel is, it's not ultimately his news. For he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. It's crystal clear, isn't it, that the good news of this moment is from God on high. God's will doesn't have to make perfect human sense for us to act upon it. It is above Zachariah's understanding at this moment. It is not illogical or even irrational in the pure sense of those words, but it is above his capacity to understand, and it is apparently above his faith to receive, but it doesn't diminish any of the great reality. And the experience that unfolds after this is exactly what God uses to grow his faith. Look at verse 20. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Two things there. They will be fulfilled. Not maybe. uh, If it all works out, then we should expect. No. Gabriel simply says, which will be fulfilled. And then the second part of that, in their time. A friend of mine I've heard Say even wrote a book titled as such, but he wisely says, God wears his own watch. And the problem is most of us want God to work according to our watches, our timeframes, our expectations, our calendars. Come on. You know, God, it is Sunday, and uh, we've been praying about this for seven days now, and haven't heard a word. God, if you could give us the answer by next month, that would be helpful. God, we've been praying five years and have seen no movement. And we're forever staring down, so to speak, at our own timepiece. God's not looking at your watch, but he never loses track of his. The scriptures tell us in another place, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It's his time frame. It's his schedule. And Zechariah's faith needs to grow to a place where he can fully submit. And remember, God has already said of of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are righteous, they are people of integrity, but they still need to grow, as all of us do. The fulfillment of God's promise unfolds then, verses 23 through 25, as we read earlier. When, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Skip all the way to verse 57. I know we didn't read to the end of this chapter, but here Luke records, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Who, who set that timing? god almighty and she bore a son just like god said you know elizabeth stands in a long line of women in the old testament in particular who once felt the pain of childlessness yet in time according to god's grace and wisdom they became mothers of important figures in the story of redemption sarah gave birth to in her old age to isaac rachel after years of anguish and sorrow gave birth to joseph Hannah gave birth to Samuel, the wife of Manoah to Samson. Verse 58 says, so sweetly and wonderfully, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Oh, there's another part of the fulfillment. You will have great joy. And then verse 59 says something interesting. They would have named him Zechariah after his father. A name, by the way, that means Yahweh or God remembers That's a good testimonial name, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We've I've known a number of Zacharias in my life. But what did they name him? Exactly what the Lord had spoken through Gabriel, they should name him. His name. His mother answered, "No, he shall be called John." The community pressure was, "This boy should be Zachariah too." And and he Zachariah can't speak yet, but Elizabeth does. No, his name shall be called John, and. That name, as Zachariah goes on to verify, his name shall be called John, is God has been gracious. Wait a second. Zachariah and Elizabeth, what what about all those years of pain and difficulty, the reproach that you bore? Was God being gracious then? Here's the question. As we read this story and we break out into this light of grace, this day of rejoicing, if we could ask Zachariah and Elizabeth this important question, how do you think they would answer it? Zachariah and Elizabeth, was it worth the wait? There's no doubt in my mind that they would emphatically answer that with a mighty yes. Yes, it was worth the wait. Yes, it was worth the long nights as a couple. Yes, it was worth the wait as citizens in Israel under the rule of Herod. And then as you continue reading even beyond that, as as the community has come together to rejoice in this, there's a particular thing that happens when they say, no, he shall be called John. Uh, Verse 63, when Zechariah answers by writing on a tablet, isn't that a funny little uh, added point there? His name is John. They all wondered. Even that experience of wonder is a grace of God. And you know, beloved, so will we when the whole story of your life and mine is told. Some of you are in the middle of very difficult circumstances right now that make no sense to you whatsoever, and it seems all darkness and discouragement. But the dismal circumstances of their long days under Herod's madness and Rome's occupation are not The final word over their lives. The pain and sorrow of childlessness and the community reproach is not the final word over their lives. Even the failure of Zechariah's faith in that moment with Gabriel in the pinnacle moment of his priestly ministry is not the final word. God's eternal purpose of grace is the final word. And so the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth stands forever over their lives. God is gracious, like a banner unfurled at the perfect moment, a banner over the hard days of national suffering and the personal pain, the wonder of this great truth and reality for them. God is gracious. It's the summary of God's work At the end of their days, that is now forever inscribed, not just upon their souls, but on the pages of God's word. Remember, Jesus said, not not one little dot of an I or cross of a T will fail. So it brings us to that place of saying, you know, what, what dismal circumstances occupy your vision for this moment? What causes you, as we sang earlier, to mourn in lonely exile here? I can think of a lot of things that cause my heart to mourn. My sin being chiefest, but the loss of relationships, failures of my own life and ministry as husband, as father. There's a pile of things that are in the rearview mirror now that cause me to mourn in one sense and feel some of that spiritual exile. What personal pain and sorrow do you feel defines your life at this moment? Because for that long season, Zachariah and Elizabeth in particular probably felt that their childlessness was the thing that defined them, the thing that causes you to cry out, again taking the words of that hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O God, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. That's the only remedy that Jesus would come. Is there some weakness of faith? Some failure in your service to God, similar to Zacharias that you fear may sideline you or that disappoints God Almighty. You look at this and you just say, oh, but here's the great reality. Not just that God enters your world and says, don't be afraid. As if he kind of gives you some divine fist bump and a chest bump if you're a guy. Because that's what guys do. Isn't that kind of weird? You watch some of these sporting events and guys run up and bang, chest, headbutt each other. Sign of affection and respect. Oh, God has so much more to offer us than just some kind of bizarre word or gesture of encouragement. The great reality is that he is saying, do not be afraid because I am gracious. Do not be afraid because my grace is bigger than your greatest fear. Do not be afraid because I am more gracious than even your deepest failure or your weakest moment of faith. The frayed threads and loose ends of your faith that seem to make no sense at this particular moment are being woven into the eternally glorious tapestry of his redemption and his work of salvation. So do not be afraid. Our God is gracious. Let's pray together. Oh God, give us faith to see beyond the dismal circumstances nationally. Give us grace to see beyond the depths of our sin and failure of the weakness of our faith and cause us through the lens of your holy word and the good news of this divine messenger to believe that all of the promises that you have given are yes and amen in Jesus. Even those things that have yet to be fulfilled, which seem from our vantage point to be almost impossible for fulfillment. Oh, Lord God, give us faith to believe and fuel our hearts with a with the humility that would serve gladly righteously with integrity give us faith to trust you that you are taking those frayed threads of our faith and those ragged edges and are, you are, in fact, accomplishing great things. So strengthen the weak. Encourage those who are overwhelmed and depressed. Flood our hearts, our minds, our wills with the grace of Christ. That we may believe the record of your work and your word. You are gracious. Now, Father, take this word and seal it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and give us grace to believe that you are a gracious God. How we thank you for the power of the gospel story and ask that you would continue to accomplish your great purposes. Even, even the thought that Jesus might return today is overwhelming and it gives us joy. So whether that's today or 10 years from now, or even longer, we trust you and we cannot wait until we know the whole story that we too, with those like Zachariah and Elizabeth, their friends, their neighbors who would come in on that day may worship you in praise and wonder and declare with the, with the redeemed of the, of the ages, our God is gracious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.